0: He tēnei nā te reo o
3: because this has not been tried in any human before, you have to be a particular sort of person to try it. And so that does take bravery. But patients with these diseases show a lot of bravery in their everyday life anyway.
0: Hello and welcome to our changing world co DNA. Richard Roxburgh is an associate professor at Waipapa Thaumataro, the University of Auckland, and a practicing neurologist at Auckland City Hospital. The patients Richard is talking about are those that suffer from neurogenetic conditions. A word with two parts, genetic.
3: An abnormality in just one gene can cause a disease
0: and neuro
3: is talking about things which affect the neurological system by which i mean the brain the spinal cord the nerves, or indeed the muscles.
0: So it's an umbrella term that encompasses a whole number of different, relatively rare conditions.
3: Probably one of the best-known conditions is Huntington's disease. I've seen around about 200 people with Huntington's disease here in Auckland. Other diseases that perhaps are more well-known may be things like uh, muscular dystrophy, Within that, there are different forms of muscular dystrophy, but uh, people may have heard of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. That's probably one of the better known conditions. Myotonic dystrophy is probably the commonest of the muscular dystrophies.
0: Today we'll be focusing on one neurogenetic condition and that bravery that Richard spoke about at the start. Those patients taking part in a phase one brand new therapy trial for myotonic dystrophy. But before we hone in on that, a bit more about neurogenetic conditions in general. Because the key thing is that just one gene line. Genes written in our DNA encode our makeup. But we're not talking here about a tangle of different genes that might be implicated in or increase your chances of. This is a straight line from a variation in a gene to diagnosis.
3: The reason I'm really interested in that is, apart from the satisfaction and being able to tell somebody this is the cause of your condition and being absolutely sure about it, uh, which, which can be in and of itself really powerful for the patient, it also opens up the possibilities of specific treatments because if you imagine a jigsaw puzzle where instead of having hundreds and hundreds of little pieces you've got one big piece it's it's a lot easier to do a jigsaw puzzle uh, like that
0: it also means that these conditions are inheritable and that they are part of a patient's family history
3: with genetic conditions often they see one of their parents has had it they've progressed maybe even have died from the condition and I think that patients are often weighing up that against the risks of of, uh, taking part in a trial like this.
0: Each neurogenetic condition has its own range of symptoms and severity. And that can be the case within diseases too. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of what causes myotonic dystrophy. You might already know that our DNA code is written using four letters, A, C, T and G. Long stretches of these letters encode our genes, like... A, C, C, T, G, G, A, and so on for another 3 billion or so letters. In some parts of our DNA, it can get a bit repetitive, and that's normal. In one part, near a gene called DMPK, there are a string of repeated C, T, and Gs. So it goes CTG, 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 CTG. Up to 37 of these, totally normal. But people who have myotonic dystrophy type 1, they have more CTGs in this part of their DNA. This string of CTGs is unstable and expands to more than 50 repeats. So now there are more letters than there should be. And that causes issues in the next step. The DNA is copied into RNA. Normally, the RNA gets processed, kind of like a tidy-up. Bits get chopped away and then glued or spliced back together before it's ready for the next step of being translated into a protein. But in myotonic dystrophy, this RNA now has more letters than it should. And like crinkled paper in a printer, it jams up the RNA processing machinery.
3: So what happens in in myotonic dystrophy because it's got this extra piece of RNA in it because the DNA is expanded and the messenger RNA is expanded, that sucks in all these regulators, and they get bound to this piece of toxic mRNA, and then they're not re- available to help with the regulation of other genes. So other genes they make their RNA perfectly normal me- messenger RNA, but because of the lack of these regulators they get abnormally spliced and so the proteins for those other genes are abnormal so myotonic dystrophy it's called a muscular dystrophy but it really is a multi-system disease it can affect the brain often with learning disability in children it can affect the muscles obviously but it also can affect the heart and it can cause diabetes and have a small predisposition to cancer as well.
0: People with myotonic dystrophy have progressive muscle wasting and weakness, particularly in their faces and their arms. And there's another characteristic symptom.
3: It gets its name from this thing called myotonia, and that's where muscles, when they contract, they, they, they go into a kind of a spasm, and and patients find it very difficult to release their muscles. So myotonic dystrophy is, as I said before, the commonest uh, muscular dystrophy in New Zealand with about three to four hundred people uh, having myotonic dystrophy.
0: It's rare, can be debilitating and there's no cure. So people are trying to work on that.
3: We are working with a research company called Dyne in the United States and they've, they've approached us to help run a clinical trial here. We've started that trial now and we've, we have a um, Five people in New Zealand enrolled in that trial. We, these people in New Zealand were the first people in the world to take this, uh, this drug ever. I mean, it hasn't even been tried in normal volunteers because they don't have the abnormal RNA, so it's, it wasn't thought to be appropriate to try it in healthy volunteers.
0: Getting to this stage has taken decades of research to trace how the change in the DNA results in the symptoms in the body. And even with those decades of research, not everything is fully figured out. But there's enough to identify and target the main culprit and hopefully the weak link in the chain.
3: It's very clever, actually. So we want to try to remove the toxic RNA from the cells.
0: So this American research company, Dime Therapeutics, have developed a molecule that goes to the muscle cells.
3: Attached to that... Is a small piece of artificial DNA, and that DNA matches a short piece of the messenger RNA, and so it goes around, goes into the cell, goes inside the nucleus where the RNA is and the DNA is, and it latches on to the um, messenger RNA. Now your body has a natural defence mechanism, so when it sees a piece of RNA attached to DNA, it's, it says to itself. This piece of RNA is likely to be a virus. And we're hoping that then the body will destroy the toxic RNA itself, and then that will release the regulators to go and do their job properly.
0: So the trial has been underway since last September. Because it's a phase one clinical trial, it's all about safety and taking things slowly. And in stages.
3: You can imagine that we've all been on the edge of our seats. Um, We gave the first um, uh, dose of the drug. We always start with a very low dose and we try, try that low dose first. We watch the first two patients because we know one of them is going to get it and we see that it's safe in those two before we um, uh, go and give it to a cohort of, uh, I think it was 16 patients. And then after that, we watch those patients and then if they're all healthy, then we can increase the dose and try a slightly higher dose. And so we have finished the first cohort. We've recruited for the first cohort of patients. So we're now looking to see whether there's any any safety signal uh, so that before we can go up to the next level.
0: This is very much a collective, collaborative we that Richard is using. This cohort of 16, he mentions, is spread across several countries. New Zealand was the first place where the trial began, but the full trial plans to involve an estimated 72 patients in institutes in the UK, France, Germany, Italy and the Netherlands. But they need to go step by step. Give a small dose of treatment to some and placebo control for others and then check for any adverse reactions. So far, we've been chatting in Richard's University office on the Grafton campus opposite the hospital. But the trial itself is taking place in a building just off Grafton Road, a quick walk away. This is the home of New Zealand Clinical Research, or NZCR. There we catch up with study coordinator Shruti Belachandaran, who takes us up to the seventh floor to show us the ward that study participants come to.
1: This is the ward. Um, so we've got 35 beds in total. We run exactly like a hospital. We're 24-7 and this is the overnight stay. So this is where the patients and the healthy volunteers get dosed and where they stay during the inpatient or their their monitoring period.
0: And for NZCR, how many
1: clinical trials are you guys involved in oh, wow. at one time? Um, so we probably have anywhere between 80 and 100, all in different stages though. Some starting up, some in the middle of recruitment, some that are finishing up, and um, all the results have been pulled by the sponsors and are being reviewed. Um, so they're all in very different stages.
0: So patients that come in for the dying clinical trial on myotonic
1: dystrophy, they will be interacting with you? You'll be like their first port of call when they show up to correct. the building? Yeah, correct, yeah, yeah. And then um, we take them to uh, The nurses or the doctors or to Richard whatever is responsible for that day.
0: So the patients will come in they'll get their dose and then they stay overnight for monitoring and also for different tests?
1: Yeah yeah. so two nights um, post-dose that's when we do our safety checks, bloods, ECGs, vitals, make sure that their health is monitored, make sure that um, they're responding as they should or there's no concerns, making sure that they feel comfortable enough and then once we're satisfied whether it be for any study could be to, to anywhere between two and five days that they stay overnight. Um, the doctors will then discharge them and they would be sent home um, and then they'll have a series of follow-up visits maybe over several months, in this case for the dying study years. And what do you like about your job? Oh, good question. Um, I have been in this job for, this will be my seventh year and I have met numerous amount of people um, different personalities all over uh, New Zealand actually because we recruit outside of Auckland as well as within so the coolest thing is in clinical trials you cater to rare diseases, that's what we're known for really Um, and in New Zealand a lot of families don't get access to medication because they're not funded or it's out of their ability to to pay for those drugs and so being included in a clinical trial means you are involved in shaping someone's life whether it's small for them or small for us it's a huge impact in in their life and their future Um, especially if we're looking at patients who are you know as young as paediatric patients to their 20s, um, knowing what their end of life looks like and knowing that they may not have treatment. um, Otherwise, being in a clinical trial helps them in some way. So knowing that you're a part of that really is quite nice, actually, and fulfilling. So that's probably the biggest thing for me.
0: And on that, it's a a big leap for a patient to be part of a clinical trial because this is, by definition, a drug that is not on the market is not being used by yeah. lots of different people yeah. so are there a lot of patients that come in that are quite nervous and anxious? Or? Yeah
1: Yeah. I mean it is quite nerve-wracking to take part in a clinical trial whether it's a new drug or a drug that's similar to one that exists in the market it's quite daunting to take part in a clinical trial um, and part of us mitigating that is having in-depth conversations with our sub investigators so Richard does a really good job in in having a conversation and making sure that their concerns have been addressed before they get on to that study and that's done by Richard and then by Miriam and then myself and, and then again by our sub-investigators, our doctors that are on site at NZCR there's several conversations um, to make sure that all of their concerns are addressed and making sure that they understand where clinical trials come from so the scientific review that's done, the ethical reviews that are done what with the what we call preclinical findings, what investigations or results that were found uh, up until this stage. So we we do put a lot of um, efforts into making sure that they feel comfortable at the end of the day in clinical trials it's voluntary based. So we offer that this opportunity is there for them but it's never forced. So um, making sure that they are, if they're not comfortable, that they do not need to sign consent. Um, and that's the biggest focus for us as well, especially before they dose. Um, so the relationships and the processes and the staff that we have in place as well with our nurses and doctors and pharmacists um, and research assistants and research support team as a whole, um, we all play a part to making sure that they that their confidence is there as they, um, as they dose in throughout the trial as well.
0: If it moves through the different stages, an estimated 15 New Zealanders with myotonic dystrophy are likely to join the trial. How did it come to be that Aotearoa is one of the study sites? Well, a couple of reasons. But a key one is that New Zealand has a neurogenetic condition
4: registry. Way back in 2006, 2007, I was working for a patient support organisation. Miriam Rodriguez is now the neurogenetic
0: research lead at Te Fata Ora in Auckland. And she also works at the University of Auckland, project managing the neurogenetic research group that Richard leads. But back in 2006, those patients she was working with had a suggestion of what could help them.
4: Some of the young people affected with neuromuscular conditions, so these were young people with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and spinal muscular atrophy, um, they were very aware about what was happening overseas in relation to improving opportunities to participate in research and they wanted to see the same happening here in New Zealand. And so they came to me and as part of my, my job with the patient support organisation they said we want to do what this network, MD are doing. We want to be part of that. And, um, and so it was my job to make us part of that international network. And that included setting up a patient registry. There are lots of hospital dramas with good-looking doctors and scientists helping patients through shiny
0: laboratory montages featuring glass beakers, intense pipetting and staring down microscopes. But where's the data collection montage? Patient registries aren't particularly sexy, but for rare conditions, they can help a lot.
4: We couldn't have predicted how well it would have worked out. The idea is you take a patient registry, have people with you know these rare disorders um, who would otherwise be very difficult to find, and so you maintain the registry in the hope that... Pharmaceutical companies will come to you and say, "We want to run a trial in this particular rare disorder," and we're able to find those patients really quickly and easily because you know these patients will be throughout New Zealand. They don't all live in Auckland, and um, they'll be throughout New Zealand. Um, often the trials will be. Um, very specific to the genetic alteration that the patients have and if you think you could easily find those patients any other way go you know just really go right ahead the thing the thing is there's no other way to find these patients quickly and easily you've seen how busy the neurologists are they really don't have time to go looking through all of their patients with whatever the condition is and and check to see whether they've got exactly the right genetic alteration or are they still ambulatory or not or you know whatever the precise criteria for the study Uh, but the registry has all that information and so very quickly you can find that information we go back to the company and we say we've got this number of people here and ready to go for a clinical trial so it really speeds up this process and that's what we've seen happen with our patient registry. We ran it for years and it seemed a little boring <laughs> and um, and because you know we're just kind of collecting these patients and there weren't really that many research opportunities that we could be uh, presenting the patients with, and now things have changed. And it is truly the best part of my job to be ringing people and saying, hey, here's a research opportunity that you might be interested in like I never will give their details to a pharmaceutical company so we're very careful with patient privacy and that kind of thing but I give the patients all of the information and it's up to them of course whether you know whether they pursue it and I facilitate that happening so
0: I didn't realize that, that of course that's your part of your job but what a striking part of your job to be picking up the phone to somebody and saying that there is you know that Genetic, inheritable disease that your family has gone through Mm. generations of having actually there's a trial coming up and there's always going to be an asterisk on whether it is or is not going to work for them but being able to pick up the phone and say actually there might be a bit of hope here
4: Yes, yeah, that's right. And and when you think about, you know, so here we are in New Zealand, where we're at the end of the earth, and we have spent years reading about um, research and, and clinical trials and studies that happen in the USA and in Europe. And, and why don't they happen here in New Zealand? New Zealand's actually a great place to do these clinical trials. Our regulatory processes are pretty swift. We've got great health standards of care that are you know comparable to the US and Europe and we've got a keen and motivated patient population that don't otherwise get offered maybe any hope of actual treatment and so it's the best thing to be able to do clinical trials here
0: the registry is called Punaha io New Zealand Neurogenetic Research Bank and it's networked with other patient registries around the world It covers about 70 different neurogenetic diseases, and there are 1,300 people enrolled out of the estimated 4,000 people in New Zealand that might suffer from these conditions. So about a third. And now there's another aspect to it.
4: More recently, we expanded the registry to include biobanking as well. And so that's been a massive learning curve and really exciting. And again, this was patient-driven as well, because over the years we would have patients contact us. They know that they're on the registry. We have their demographic information. We've got some clinical information. And then they would be saying, well, when, when do you want my samples? Like, w- when do you want to store some samples from me? And this brings us to the basement. Cue Montage. This is
2: a cryogenic storage facility. The samples for the dewers are at around about minus 196. If there is liquid nitrogen that displaces the oxygen, you can asphyxiate
0: and and die. Actually, the cryo-storage facility is high hazard, but low risk, says Alice Rikers. She's the technical manager, so she would know. I'm just leaning into the drama, making biobanks exciting. Because like patient registries, Liquid nitrogen vapor phase containers, or dewers, also often don't make the screen. But maybe they should. So these are really large juries. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anything this big. Yeah,
2: <laughs> they're definitely they're they're I think the largest that you can get. Um, and you can see that they're strapped to the to the wall and things like that. They are movable, which means that um, in cases of which we have an earthquake or something like that, they are able to kind of slide around a little bit. But they're protected and all strapped and all that kind of stuff. And then you can see uh, there's some winches along there to lift up the lids and and and
0: various other things. What are they? They're about two meters in diameter, like a meter. Is it like
2: maybe a yeah, meter? Yeah, it's like, and like one half? and a one and a half maybe. And, yeah. And
0: they're up to my forehead. So yeah.
2: Like... So I'm one sixty, so they're probably just a little bit below that. <laughs>
0: And so does your role encompass, you know, making sure that everything stays frozen but also putting it into the right place and then if somebody wants to access a piece of tissue, you're the person who's pulling it out?
2: Yeah, so there's um, there's governance structures that do kind of approvals and things like that um, for allowing people to access tissue, and then uh, what I do is more of the operational, you know, managing the, getting the samples out, getting the samples in. We have some technicians as well that do that work and and help alongside. So we have a a database that tracks all of our different projects and samples um, that correlates to the physical location
0: in the virtual database. Biobank samples allow for research into the underlying causes and progression of these rare conditions. This helps researchers figure out that DNA change to symptom puzzle, which means more chance of developing therapies, which leads to clinical trials to test these, which hopefully someday will lead to a treatment that works for patients. It was research into disease progression that was happening in Auckland that drew the attention of Down Therapeutics. Here's Miriam Rodriguez again.
4: The clinical trials can't really happen without natural history, without knowing the progression of the disease over time, because what what are you going to measure? Uh, So the clinical trial has to measure something to see whether the drug works or not, but how do they know what to measure? And so the natural history studies, that's where the information is gained about which outcome measures show change over time, and that's what can be used in the clinical trial. And so that's really what we saw happening here in New Zealand with myotonic dystrophy. We have our patient registry. We involved our patients in the natural history study, which led to the clinical trial.
0: For myotonic dystrophy, this involves investigating what's going on in patients' muscle cells across time and also using specialised equipment that they have that can precisely measure muscle strength. For this current trial, I asked Dr Richard Roxburgh, when will we know if A, it's safe, and B, it's effective?
3: At each stage, as we're increasing the dose, we need to look at the safety data. So in the long term, people will be taking this drug uh, you know, throughout their lives, maybe. Um, so we need to know whether it's safe over months, years. And so we we might not know the full safety data uh, for years, but obviously if something is, is we'll know fairly early. And, and so far, everything's been okay, I'd have to say. As far as efficacy, this isn't an efficacy study, so we probably won't know until the next, uh, you know, if it comes through this and it's shown to be safe, then we go on to efficacy. But we are doing some things even now in looking at uh, those muscle biopsy results, for example. We will be able to know as soon as August whether there's any change in the splicing of the genes that are abnormally spliced in this uh, condition.
0: Thanks to Associate Professor Richard Roxburgh, Miriam Rodriguez, Alice Rikers and Shruti bella Liz Garton ko Ellen Rikers. I produced this episode with help from Liz and Ellen. Sound Engineering was by Phil Bench, and Tim Wacken is Executive Producer of Podcasts and Series at RNZ. Ki Follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast app. Plus, we're now also on YouTube. Search for the RNZ podcast channel where you can find the Our Changing World playlist. Our website is at rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld. You can sign up to our monthly newsletter there. And you can also find us on Twitter or Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. Great new podcasts are being released by RNZ all the time. If you haven't come across it yet, I would highly recommend a listen of Mr. Little Meets Mr. Big. It delves into a certain kind of police sting designed to get confessions from suspects and asks the question whether this is fair. Tinakoi i Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kiappai, To Wiki.